We are going to start today's session with a conversation with John Stewart, CEO of Map Anything, a successful entrepreneur whom we've done an entrepreneur journey story on, so you may have met him through that already, but today we're going to meet him on camera. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So tell us uh, about the genesis of Map Anything. How did you get started? What was the idea, et cetera? So Map Anything did not start as a software company. We started as a Salesforce.com system integrator in 2009. Uh, so we were doing, um, our particular specialty was using the Force.com platform to build many, uh, many business operation environments for various small businesses. Uh, so we did some hardcore development. It was in October 2011 that one of our clients, uh, Cardella Waste, they, uh, they approached me and said, really, you know, one of the things for them would be they, they're very interested in understanding where their dumpsters were on a map and in particular what counties those dumpsters were in as well for tax reasons. And so the idea for Map Anything was born, and uh, we built the product, and we put it on the App Exchange, which is Salesforce's equivalent of sort of like the, uh, the App Store on an on iOS device. And we put it on their App Exchange in January of 2012. And what was the idea? What what was Map Anything to begin with? To begin with, version one, way back when, was simply the idea was visualization of your Salesforce data on a map, understanding things geospatially. It was very simple. It was pins on a map. So the first version of the product is nowhere near what it is today, where we're entire geospatial visualization and uh, platform built on Salesforce. Uh, very very simplistic. So. Just bring your data to life to understand it that way. And uh, that was the idea for the product, um, and, uh, and, and that's how it got launched. Uh, that wasn't necessarily the idea for the company, because when we put the product out there in 2012, our primary focus continued to be uh, services work on Salesforce.com, we were a system integrator, as I mentioned. And so the, the product was a bit of an afterthought. Our journey to being a software company really took, started to take place later. So let's actually talk a little bit about your um, services business because you're following a methodology or you followed a methodology of bootstrapping which we have institutionalized in our program at, as bootstrapping using services. And we have company after company following that strategy and we've tremendous number of cust uh, case studies and success stories using that methodology of um, building a company. So how far did you get to in terms of um, revenues from the services business? So at our peak, our services business was a couple million dollars a year, like two and a half, three million dollars a year in uh, Salesforce services. We were a very small boutique shop at the time. Yeah. and. Um, so this, the, when you launched the Map Anything product with this very simple version one product and you started getting downloads on the Salesforce.com app exchange, was that a paid product or was that just a free product? It was always a paid product from the day it launched. So it was so did quite you, a good Did you figure out what uh, use case people were downloading your um, app for? 
So yeah, broke down into uh, a couple primary use cases, uh, some sales use cases and some field service use cases. And, um, you know, we had it on the app exchange and we didn't do a lot with it in that first year, but people were still downloading it and buying it basically. And so uh, we didn't really behave like a software company until we decided to start that transition, meaning that honestly, we may or may not have responded to a lead earlier. <laughs> Like, again, it was not the focus of the business, uh, you know, but we, we, we did get a lot of really great feedback about the product. And so we, those, we did have some early adopters who be, you know, who to this day are still customers and it became a bit of a, a following. So, um, what were they telling you in, ter in terms of these sales and field services use cases? What were you learning from these, uh, customers of what, what else did they want in the product? I imagine so that's the, how the product came about, right? Correct. Every time they called, it was usually for or emailed. It was about adding features or capabilities, which we were happy to listen to, right? But the most important thing we learned from those customers was that um, if you decide to, be, to become a software company, you need to start that transition because it's really hard to be a software company uh, with just dipping your toes in the water. Uh, necessary for us early on because we self-funded using our services business, of course, right? But, yeah. uh, you know, but it, it, it is really difficult to kind of be both. And the other thing that we learned was that there's a big difference between uh, having a product on the app exchange, a software product, and actually being a software company, especially one that will have enterprise clients. And, you know, those early days were, were instructive to, for us to learn about the proper way to do releases, the proper way to do support, the proper way to roll out features, the proper way to onboard clients, and it goes on and on and on and on. And so those, that was very instructive and very educational for us. And um, in terms of features, what were you learning? What were the top requirements that would uh, enable you to be a product company? So sure, the biggest features that the early adapters helped us with, or the early adopters helped us with, was were all features around how to manage large number of users. It had nothing to do with the features of the individual product itself, because I mean we had better ideas around those than a lot of our customers. But really, on okay, this is great, but what if I've got 500 users that want to use your product? How, you know you know, how do we support them? Like, how do we enable functionality for some but not others? How do we get them trained up? Um, you know, how do we set up your product in such a way we have this idea of, um, of layers, right, or uh, these basically think of it as a visual report. How do we roll this out so that I can make a one layer for all 500 people to use as opposed to 500 individual layers? It, it, it basically, a lot of the early stuff was really about scale. Uh, you know, which was, I'm grateful for it uh, because, you know, today we have. You weren't thinking about those. No, not at all. It was just here's a feature, yeah. right? And those were yeah. really, in terms of driving adoption, that's less important than uh, basically the supportability. Case in point, like our product today, you know, we're a Swiss Army knife. There's 100 blades in it. Most companies, even enterprise companies, use two or three business use case specific features and functions, right? But they all have the same issue for rolling it out, supporting it, adopting it, 
at a scale and a volume if you ever want to get to that point. Today, we have over 80,000 users worldwide in 56 different countries, right? So, um, yeah. you know, that, that's a big part of our success is we kind of figured out the formula early on how to do this at scale. And what uh, did you do pricing-wise? So for that, that was kind of easy for us because we are in the Salesforce.com ecosystem and they use a per user per month pricing model. And so we just followed their pricing model. Um, you know, getting the pricing right from day one was a little challenging, right? You know, obviously you, you, you kind of give it away to the early adopters, but after that, you know, we, you know, we kind of figured out where the kind of sweet spot for our pricing was based on kind of a relative value to the core platform. Mm -hmm. And what was the price point? When we launched, uh, the price point was uh, $12 per user per month. Um, but back then, a uh, sales cloud software license was $65. And so yeah. we pegged it at 20% of the price of the platform, so mm -hmm. roughly. So it, you know, and that's an important thing, too, because what we learned when we negotiated with procurement officers of these enterprise companies is they always yeah. kind of pegged you back to, well, I'm paying this to right. the platform. Yeah, so, yeah, sure. <laughs> yep. Very common pricing issue. So uh, now, were you able to close deals just from the app exchange, or did you have to put telesales and so forth to actually close deals? Well, until the end of 2013, really, or I should say, in, I take it back. Until mid-2013, you're talking dealing sales guys. So, like, what I would do is the leads would come in off the app exchange. Whenever someone downloaded, we'd get an email that said, hey, someone downloaded your product. And when I had time, I would reach out, call them, and follow up with them and, you know, sell them a few licenses here and there. Um, as I mentioned, it wasn't until mid-2013 that we decided to say, hey, we're going to try to make a go of this as a software company. And you know, we started hiring inside salespeople to, to field those and handle those things. Mm -hmm. And what, um, what did you do revenue-wise from the product business in 2013? 2014. Um, 2014. Yeah, okay. Either one, so, 2013, 14, either, both of them, actually. Yeah, so, yeah, so our fiscal year uh, runs from February 1st to uh, – uh, our fiscal year runs from February 1st to um, January 31st. So our fiscal year 2014 was mostly 2013, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did tell you, actually, I just pull this up. I have a look at this. Uh, and, and while you're doing that, also tell us how did that compare with your services revenue at this point? Because that's one of the interesting points of when a services company starts transitioning to a product company, it's always interesting to see how the revenue changes, mix. So it was $900,000. Um, which was at by the end of so in fiscal year uh, so in the in the period that ran from February first two thousand thirteen to January thirty first two thousand fourteen right that period where we decided to make the transition uh, it was um, about four hundred fifty thousand dollars in uh, revenue but it was. Uh, we just we had almost hit 0.9 million annual recurring contracts of AR, 
right? So the way this we is sell is we product can... revenue. All of this is product revenue. Four hundred fifty booked and then four hundred fifty recognized and nine hundred booked. Correct. And how much was your services at this point? About a couple of million still. Uh, about two and a half million. That was a piece of your first services. And um, did you have to invest a lot at this point? So when you go into the 2015 fiscal year, the, the calendar year of 2014, were you investing a lot to get to the next level? We were investing everything. So we had basically stopped operating profitably, so to speak, and started pouring mm -hmm. all our money into the product. So it was, it was like I said, mid-2013, we decided to make the transition or the switch Right, and it was at that mm -hmm. point um, that we decided to uh, take our basically our services revenue, the the margin from our services revenue, which by the way is not that fantastic as anybody will tell you on this phone. It's about thirty five percent, and we were we were piling that into doing uh, marketing and branding for our product. So. So um, you raised Series A at some point, and you were, you were this your business is an Atlanta and North Carolina-based business, right? Correct. Right. We were Charlotte, North Carolina headquartered, and our development staff is out of Atlanta. How did you raise your Series A? At what point, and how, and it where? Was a quite, it was quite a bit later. Um, we did not close our Series A. Our Series A was $7.3 million. We did not close our Series A until December 14, 2015. So it was, it was quite a bit later uh, that we did that. Um, and what was and the we revenue were, level at this point? So the revenue level the, uh, from a recurring standpoint was point. Three or two point four million dollars of recurring revenue from a, a forward contracting standpoint. Um, yeah. So in December fourteenth, two thousand. Uh, yeah, December fourteenth, two thousand fifteen, mm -hmm. when we closed, it was right about there. The actual revenue was probably about the same three million or three point five million dollars. And the reason being is we, you know, we were transitioning the company. So right. uh, by the start of two thousand fifteen, we'd actually stopped taking new services contracts. And yeah. we really started to focus on being a software company. So we stopped chasing yeah. services dollars. And um, where did you raise your Series A? Uh, you, so our lead investor, Gray Croft, is New York City. So did you, in the, in the roadshow for raising this money, did you do both East Coast and West Coast, or did you focus just on New York City? So we, we tried a little bit of both. Uh, but honestly, being an East Coast company, uh, West Coast VCs, uh, they don't really like flying east. Uh, so that's a little bit different these days. But when I was doing it, uh, that kind of got kind of painted uh, in a certain way if you're East Coast uh, VC. So we kind of figured out that our investment was going to come from the East Coast, and we started to focus on the VCs up and down you know, Virginia and uh, New York City. Um, yeah. And, and what uh, you raised a $10 million Series B. What were the metrics no, and how did you get there? No, no, no. We, we raised a $7.3 million 
series, uh, sorry, $7.2 million Series A, and then we, uh, 13 months later, uh, we closed our Series B, and that was $33.3 million was our B. Oh. So, um, so how, what were the metrics that got you that far? So in 13 months, we went from $2.5 million in recurring revenue to $8.5 million in recurring revenue. So in a pretty short period of time. What do you attribute that growth to? Uh, investing in sales and marketing, uh, really, and uh, just uh, and as well as brand equity. We did a lot of uh, brand equity, brand development inside our primary ecosystem, which is Salesforce.com. What percentage of the leads were coming from the Salesforce.com app exchange? 100%? Uh, well, the lead, no, not not even close. Um, far more of our leads were coming from the trade shows that we sponsor. Salesforce does these world tours. And we sponsored a, we could sponsor all of them. And Salesforce would do local regional events, so we'd sponsor every one we could find. And of course, we'd sponsor Dreamforce. And so most of our leads were coming from uh, boot scans at those shows, where we'd scan mm -hmm. people coming. And then, of course, as our brand began to build, uh, our app exchange lead flow continued to grow organically. And then, mm -hmm. as we invested in the ecosystem and our relationship with Salesforce continues to get tighter and tighter. You know, a lot of it is grassroots effort where we have relationships with uh, the field sales engineers and the field account executives at Salesforce, and they'll, they bring us an awful lot of deals. So that's after mm -hmm. many, many years of doing brand development and brand equity exercises and all, you name it. So. Yeah. And uh, are there any – these are all huge pros of operating within the Salesforce.com ecosystem on their platform, on the App Exchange, and so on and so forth. Are there any cons to being beholden to Salesforce.com? Well, what do you mean by beholden, right? Well, let me give you an example. Um, there is a company, which I'm sure you've, you're familiar with, Aptus, that is also uh, built on the Salesforce.com ecosystem. They built on Force.com, and they got up to $5 million in bootstrap revenue before they raised any money. Subsequently, they raised a tremendous amount of money and has gone public since. Um, After they public, have they? Uh, I so. Or at least it's on, the, on its way to get pub, go public. It has filed, I think, something, uh, you know, one or the other, and maybe. Uh, but but they're, you know, they're very far along at this point. But along the way, uh, Salesforce.com acquired one of their competitors. But Aptus was built on top of Salesforce.com and, and very, very closely tied to the Salesforce.com ecosystem. So that obviously created challenges for them. So that's, that's really where my question is coming from. So, uh, sure, there's, I guess there's always risk that uh, Salesforce.com could launch a product that is um, competitive. Uh, I would say with Aptis, though, uh, where they still do very well inside the ecosystem, and Salesforce only bought uh, Steelbrook, which is CPQ, right? Configured price quote. Um, Aptus does so much more in their book. You know, their real thing is con enterprise contract lifecycle management, where Salesforce has yeah. no product. So there, there, yes, there was absolutely a little bit. Uh, um, there's a little bit of overlap there that caused some stress when that happened. Uh, I think that they could have handled it better and managed through that a little bit better than they did. Um, but you know, from my standpoint, you know. We have also multiple product offerings, we're not single-threaded. 
So we're a family, a platform, a family of field productivity products at this point. So I don't think there's any one thing. I mean, there's, you know, there, there were, from a competitive standpoint, there'd be um, uh, a situation where they'd buy any company. At this, at this point, Salesforce buys companies that don't build products where it would uh, impinge on our entire book of business. Uh, I suppose, I mean, I suppose it's a risk, like there's any risk, but, you know, there's there's plenty of people who still buy new Aptis and continue to renew their Aptis while Salesforce still offers CPQ. So, you know, Salesforce is moving to a little bit of that Oracle model where, you know, Oracle competes uh, and cooperates with the people that build on their platform, right? So. Well, I think it's a, uh the strategy that you have followed is the reason I wanted to showcase your case study is we have seen this story over and over again is you take a small services company that starts on a particular platform and ecosystem, whether it's Salesforce.com, whether it's Intuit or, you know, any number of different platforms, Microsoft platforms, Azure, et cetera, builds on top of that gets leads from that ecosystem, gets to a certain scale, starts, you know, building further, and then grows to substantial companies, substantial product companies. You can start with system integration work, get to know the ecosystem, uh, get to, you know, get to know the customers, understand what the customers are looking for, and then building a product on top of that. So you've done that very successfully, and and it's it's a it's certainly a blueprint that you know, entrepreneurs listening can pay attention to and replicate in any ecosystem. There is a number of ecosystems that offer that kind of dynamic. So, John, uh, last question to you before we switch to uh, in, uh, entrepreneur pitches. Where to from here? Where are you now and where are you going? Right. So. We continue to expand our footprint in Salesforce.com, um, but you know, kind of speaking to some of the stuff that we talked about earlier, our, our back-end stack uh, is actually built on Amazon, the, the, the hard math, the optimization engine, the geofencing, geocoding. Uh, that's all built on an Amazon stack that powers our apps on the App Exchange. One of the places mm -hmm. we are going in the future, we've, in fact, it will be announced in about two weeks, is we've made our back-end stack available as consumable APIs with secure REST calls. And uh, we actually have other software companies now using our platform to build apps in other ecosystems. Uh, and so we're, you know, we're, we were a single app company, or we started as a service company, became an app company. Uh, from an app company, went to a suite of apps, and a suite of apps for now an API platform company as well, and we're starting to license those APIs to other software companies to develop around. And so that's, mm -hmm. that's where we can expand. And where are you revenue-wise in 2017-18 ballpark? Uh, we'll finish this year close to 30, $30 million in recurring, give or take. Okay. Great. Well, um, wonderful story and wonderful, actually, blueprint, which I love because this uh, this is something that many entrepreneurs can look at doing in many different ecosystems, as I said. So thank you for 